it might be advisable for conservative intellectuals right now to step back from all of this commotion and, and disagreement and just ask themselves, what do conservatives want? That's George Nash, an historian and author whose book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1945, has largely defined academic understanding of conservatism for the past 30 years. Today, Nash explains the development as well as the fracture of conservatism in America and offers some suggestions for conservatives who might want to regain their bearings in the era of Trump. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Few people have so influentially described the changing landscape of American politics or helped a political group define their own place on that landscape or in it as our guest, George H. Nash. Nash is, to be sure, highly regarded in the academy. At the same time, it's, it's really hard to overstate his impact on conservatives themselves. Jonah Goldberg, a columnist at National Review, has called Nash's work indispensable and admits that he's read uh, Nash's major book at least 37 times. Likewise, the American conservative has called Nash the preeminent historian of the intellectual right. We recorded this conversation with George in April 2016, well before Donald Trump was the nominee of the Republican Party. Still, the impact of Trump's rise was not lost on Nash at the time. He saw pretty clearly the causes of Trump's appeal, as well as what that appeal might mean for the right. So if you're still scratching your head uh, at the recent shifts in the Republican Party, or if you simply want to learn about these shifts from the perspective of an historian who's been studying conservatism for uh, a number of years, this episode really is for you. All right, on to the interview. Thanks for listening to Common Ground. Professor Nash, thanks very much for joining us for this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I want, I want to start, uh, we're, we're going to talk today a bit about your book, uh, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1945, which is considered an authoritative text on the topic of conservatism. Uh, uh, historians such as Jennifer Burns have referenced it as being uh, really the most important text and most cited text about conservatism in the uh, mid-20th century. I'd like to start by asking a general question. Um, I think many listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with conservatism or don't themselves identify as conservatives, uh, when they think about conservatism, they think they may think of it as a, as a large sort of monolithic political force that's associated with the Republican Party. Uh, and your book actually shows that instead of there being one big conservatism, there are many forms of conservatism. Uh, there are many conservatisms, if you will, uh, and each have seemingly different aims, different but related aims and different objections to leftism or progressivism. So I'm wondering, what, what are the different forms of conservatism that you talk about in your book, and how and when did they arise? I began uh, my book, which was originally my doctoral dissertation, with the year 1945, the end of World War II, the year as it happens that President Roosevelt died in office, a year uh, which began to turn the world in a new direction into what eventually be called the, would be called the Cold War period. And it seemed like an appropriate place to, to look for uh, in studying the development of conservative thought as opposed to liberal progressive thought and public policy in the Franklin Roosevelt era. So that was the point of departure. And what I tell people and what I mention in the book is that conservatism has never been monolithic. It has really been a coalition of different forces, different streams of thought, if you will, different tributaries of a, into a larger stream of thought. And that was very uh, interesting to me as I began studying the subject because they were not uh, a unified group and therefore were a more interesting group of people to study. Then I, as I analyzed the picture, there were at least three definite, definite um, uh, streams of consciousness that developed in that first decade or so after the concluding features of World War II. The first are what we call the classical liberals or libertarians who were devotees of the free market of capitalism, if you will, and who felt that the world was turning drastically and decisively and dangerously away mm -hmm. from 
those traditional approaches to uh, the economy and individual liberty, and they were very worried by the rise of statism or the, the notion that the government, the state, should control the economy, and they feared that such a state, even in its benign form of a welfare state perhaps at the start, might devolve into a totalitarian state that would be highly coercive, would stamp out individual liberty, and would stamp out the wellsprings of prosperity. People like Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and many others were expressing this viewpoint. And these were intellectuals now. These were not political figures that I'm writing about, uh, was writing about in this book. So that's the first uh, stream, if you will. The, the second revolt against the left, against mo the modern left, uh, came to be called traditionalist conservatism. And this is identified with people like Russell Kirk, in particular, the author of the book The Conservative Mind published in 1953, and other people like him, Peter Virick, uh, Robert Nisbet, Richard Weaver, and so on. And this broad grouping of intellectuals tended not to be economists like the first group, but they tended to be more humanistic uh, in their uh, academic settings. Uh, Kirk called himself a man of letters, for example, and their concern was that modern liberalism was not so much a threat to individual liberty, or was not only such a threat, but it was an acid that was eating away or corroding the foundations of traditional society and undermining the, the moral and religious underpinnings of that society, and thereby creating a kind of vacuum which would be filled by false gods, by ideologies on the march, by communism or socialism, Nazism, fascism. And so these traditionalists urged then that we needed to go back to restoring the traditional pillars. Uh, they wanted a revival of, of religion, of particularly Judeo-Christian faith traditions. They wanted uh, a revival of classical natural law teachings as a kind of restraint on the uh, unfettered self, if you will. And they wanted communitarian institutions between the solitary individual and the massive bureaucratic or militarized state. And they argued that communitarian institutions, churches, schools, synagogues, civil society, as we would say today, that those are bulwarks against the rise of totalitarian ideologies uh, that can occur when liberalism commits suicide, if you will, or liberalism fails us. So their critique is of modern liberalism from that point of view. What was so? I have a number of questions right off the bat, but uh, I suppose the first is that second group, the um, the conservatives who focused more on culture and religion and tradition. What so they were responding generally to the left. Um, when did when did uh, their ideas start to um, start to advance in the minds of of conservatives generally? When when were they starting to get power, and what were they really reacting to? That is to ask, what caused them to start? worrying about um, uh, the, the course of culture. Yes. Many of them saw uh, in the development of mass culture, consumerist culture, if you will, in the, in the 30s and 40s, and in the growth of uh, the uh, warfare state, if you will, total war, totalitarianism, they saw in, in all of these forces uh, uh, very dangerous threats to a kind of civilized, humane existence. And so they argued that one needed to build up again the, uh, the bulwarks of traditional society which had been undermined. And so this point of view begins to be expressed after uh, World War II, uh, after Hiroshima, for example, as one symbol, you might say, of a world gone, gone uh, amok, uh, the, the Holocaust, of course, and uh, the, uh, the, the fact that tens of millions of people had just died in a world war. And so people uh, like Richard Weaver, who wrote a book called Ideas Have Consequences in 1948, and Peter Virick in his book Conservatism Revisited, Kirk's book The Conservative Mind, published in 1953, all were looking for traditions that could be restored and revived, traditions perhaps going back to Edmund Burke, or uh, going back all the way to Aristotle if you wanted to push it far enough, you see. So the uh, second group, the traditionalist conservatives, were in many ways concerned, as you say, with culture, the direction and trajectory of culture after 
World War II. Uh, but the first group, the libertarians you listed, um, were primarily concerned with economics. What, what united these two groups other than a, a general um, uh, hesitance about the uh, left? Well, each saw the state as a threat, the state with a capital S. Okay. So the libertarians are classical liberals. The state was seeking to control society in ways that would take us on what Hayek called the road to serfdom. Hayek wrote a book of that title in 1944, and it's one of the most influential books in the English language published in the 20th century. And he argued that even with good intentions, uh, the left was going to take us on a road to... Uh, basically, uh, the loss of liberty and the loss also of prosperity. Now, your question leads me to introduce a third element mm -hmm. in this, into this uh, equation, if you will, and that is that during the 30s and 40s, as communism loomed larger on the world scene, and particularly after World War II, there arose a third group of anti-communist cold warriors, many of whom were ex-communists themselves, who had broken from the radical left of communism. Uh, such names as Richard Chambers uh, come to mind, the iconic name Whitaker Chambers. He wrote a book called Witness in 1953, which I would urge all listeners of this conversation to read. It's one of the classic autobiographies of the 20th century. He was a communist, became a spy, he broke with it, he ended up becoming a hero figure for American conservatives. That would take us perhaps into too long a detour to go into his case, but that is part of the, the fabric here. So what united the first two was partly the third. You see, anti-communism was a, a viewpoint that each wing of this developing movement could share. Uh, communism was a threat to freedom. Communism was a threat to religious faith and traditional morality. Communism was a, an existential threat to the survival of the United States and the West. Mm. So I argue in my book that the anti-communist dimension of this three-pronged revolt against the left, if you will, was a kind of unifying feature, a unifying cement. Now, the traditionalists and the libertarians were not necessarily totally separate camps. There's overlap. Uh, if you talk to a traditionalist conservative, there would be a bias in favor of a free market as opposed to total socialism, uh, so that there could be some shared ground there. I do think, however, that the traditionalists tended to be more religiously oriented, uh, less interested in economic theory than uh, most of the libertarians. But there was some common ground uh, among all these people in their belief that there was an external threat from the left Communism would be the worst uh, and most dangerous form of that because it had nuclear weapons and was headquartered in the Kremlin. But also modern liberalism, they argued, was itself leading us on the wrong path. So they could come together in some ways to some degree as time went by. You just referenced uh, Whitaker Chambers and before you were talking about Richard Weaver and Russell Kirk and a number of other uh, uh, people. These are all thinkers, not politicians, uh, and indeed you describe the conservative movement as a, quote, movement of ideas, but one with visibly non-academic and political aspirations. Uh, the first thing I'm wondering is what makes this movement uh, definably uh, intellectual, and then uh, if it is uh, intellectual, how have those ideas uh, really driven the politics of the right uh, in the last 50 years? Good questions. When I began working on this book, which, as I said, was in its first format, a doctoral dissertation, I made a decision that I didn't really want to write about uh, old Richard Nixon or Robert Taft or Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan, the political figures that we tend to identify as leading conservatives of one degree or another in the post-war period. I was interested in the philosophers, if you will, the intellectuals, the historians, political scientists, economists, literary critics, the people who are dealing not in how to win elections, but in thought, in intellectual thought, in um, finding ways to preserve and restore the best of, of American and Western civilization traditions at that level, you see, of philosophic discourse. Now, 
And as time went by, a number of those people that I wrote about became friends of and advisors to politicians. Uh, this might be a good point to introduce a little formula that my friend, uh, the historian Lee Edwards, uses sometimes to differentiate these groups. He says that every movement needs several kinds of people. It needs the philosophers, which I would call the intellectuals. It needs popularizers, that is, journalists and others who take the ideas and get them percolating out into the political uh, and, and, uh, and, and civic world. It needs political figures to achieve certain things in the political spheres. And it needs philanthropists, the four Ps, as my friend Lee Edwards calls them. The philanthropists meaning those who fundraise and provide financial support for the research and the dissemination of thinking. So my, my category of focus was the philosophers and to some extent the popularizers. Uh, if you want to call Buckley and National Review popularizers, the great magazine that brought a lot of the people together whom I've been talking about with you was National Review magazine founded by William F. Buckley Jr. in 1955. And one of his great uh, uh, sources of importance was that he provided a common meeting ground journalistically mm -hmm. for people who would not necessarily have met one another very much, but there was a common forum. And he himself, and this is I think an important point, he himself was a, an ecumenical figure mm -hmm. for this very disparate, diverse group of people who didn't always agree with one another. Buckley was at once a traditional Christian, a traditionalist. He was a free market man through and through, and he was a very strong cold warrior and a personal friend of Whitaker Chambers. So Buckley has a kind of emblematic function and as a kind of diplomat who brings together the different factions. You see, with this great variety of thinker, thinkers, it would have been easy for them to stay in their own little cubbyholes uh, and their own little circles and never uh, communicate, communicate with one another and perhaps emphasize their um, differences rather than their commonalities. And one of the important features of Buckley's work was that he provided a way for such thinkers, all of whom shared an antipathy to 20th century liberalism, mm -hmm a way for them to have common conversation. Well, I think hmm, I, th I think there is one objection that might be in the minds of some listeners, which is that politics aren't necessarily or aren't at all about ideas, but really about power. Um, I think a common argument against conservatism as you're describing it, or rather an explanation of conservatism that would seek to undermine its legitimacy as an intellectual movement, uh, would, would run as follows. Uh, conservatism at its heart is only a defense of the status quo and unwillingness to change a sort of latching on to power. Um, how would you how would you reply to, to that counter-argument? Well, I, I don't think it has a particular validity in this context. We often use the word conservative in a very loose and superficial way to mean, oh, you just want to conserve the status quo, whatever you've got or whatever your routine is, you want to keep it going, so you want to conserve it. The people I was talking about often did not like the word conservative, but for various reasons it became the label that stuck. Some of the libertarians then and now don't like the word conservative. My, my point in, my, in this book was that you could, if you just use conservative as a word in that very limited sense, you could say Fidel Castro is a conservative in Cuba. He's been dictator there for 50 years or so. Uh, he's conserving his status quo. Uh, the Chinese leadership uh, in, in communist China to this day is communist, and they are looking for ways to perpetuate their power. So I think that the, the term doesn't get us very far. Now, I think what I need to emphasize now in further response to your question is that the people I was writing about were not simply living in the ivory tower, writing tomes that would be read by a few hundred other professors and so forth. They very consciously felt that they had things to say that would be vital to, if not preserving, then restoring a more just and free and humane society. Take the libertarians, for example. They're arguing that socialism is a threat to liberty, 
that a socialist state cannot be tolerant of diversity of thought, diversity of entrepreneurship. It must control everything and lead ineluctably to a kind of totalitarian outcome, the road to serfdom. So what do you do? Hayek argued that his book was meant to educate the socialists to see the dangers of being too forceful in, in going in that direction. And Hayek's work, and later Milton Friedman, a famous free market economist uh, in, in this country, uh, came up with all sorts of ideas for how one could go about strengthening a free society as opposed to a bureaucratized, bureaucratized society. Eventually, that leads to public policy. Milton Friedman, for example, was a great proponent of voucher plans for school reform. So you, you can go from the realm of high thinking to the realm of practical policy with some of these, uh, these uh, arguments. And of course, the anti-communists argued that if communism is a great threat, then we have to resist it. Well, that means national defense has to be strong, uh, etc. So there are policy implications, and the policy implications get worked out over time so that in the latter part of this book of mine that we're discussing, one begins to see the rise of think tanks that begin to organize public policy, taking the insights of the first generation of philosophers, if you will, intellectuals, the theorists, the professors, and translating those insights into practical ideas to advance and shape public policy through legislation, through court decisions, and so on. So there, these people starting out, they might look like they were all in the ivory tower, but they very consciously wanted their thinking to do something to save the West, however they defined Western civilization. And that is where eventually, in a second generation, some of them became involved in politics themselves, Russell Kirk was an advisor to Barry Goldwater, for example, um, and uh, Friedman was uh, as well, Milton Friedman. So it, it's not that they're tightly compartmentalized, but it starts at the realm of ideas as I analyze the, the, the this unfolding story, and it moves into the realm of what I call applied conservatism with a second generation of entrepreneurs, think tank leaders, and some political figures like Reagan, like Jack Kemp, a little later on with supply-side economics. Paul Ryan today is a student of Jack Kemp, and Jack Kemp got some of his thinking from uh, free market economists. So in, in all these ways, you see the, the mingling of thinking with political operations. But at the time of the start of this story, that wasn't common. The politicians were in a world of their own, and the academics were in a world of their own. And it was only through some through the intermediation of people like Buckley, for example, that you begin to see the ideas percolating out and influencing the larger society and not simply the classroom. So in your book, you resist the urge to define conservatism universally. And in this conversation, you've, you've really been describing a variety of different forms of conservatism. Uh, and you, you say in your book uh, that you do avoid uh, universalizing uh, because you don't want to stumble into a, quote, terminological thicket. Uh, instead, you briefly characterize post-1945 conservatism as, quote, resistance to certain forces perceived to be leftist, revolutionary, and profoundly subversive of what conservatives at the time deemed worth cherishing, defending, perhaps dying for. We've talked about some of these things that conservatives at that point uh, uh, did cherish uh, and thought that they might they might in fact need to die for. I'm wondering how successful do you think uh, conservatives have been in, um, in in doing what they set out to do uh, in, the, in the immediate post-war era? Well again there were, there were three uh, components which eventually became five and perhaps just to round out the story I should mention a couple more. Uh, in the 60s and 70s there developed a school of disillusioned liberals and social democrats who acquired the label neoconservatives and they often in their own background had been on the left in various degrees but for a number of reasons having to do with the uh, 
Lyndon Johnson Great Society programs, which they saw as often failing. Also, their concern over foreign policy. Some of them were Jewish and had a special concern for, for the uh, survival of the state of Israel. Uh, many of them were academics and were upset by the new left on campus and the disruption of campuses in the, in the 60s and the Vietnam era and so on. So many of them became disillusioned with the left and started moving to the right. That's a fourth component. The fifth component of what I see is this unfolding coalition was what we would today call social conservatives. Uh, the, the term used more in the 70s and 80s was the religious right. And these folks were often um, very concerned about what they called secular humanism, or we might say modern liberalism, in, in loosely speaking, uh, seeing that secular humanism, in their view, was again undermining the moral foundations of society and threatening their own way of life. And they particularly were concerned and energized by what they regarded as the supreme abomination of their time, legalized abortion on demand. So the religious right gets an enormous impetus from that issue. And some of the Supreme Court decisions of the 60s and 70s had the effect of galvanizing this awakening, if you will, this great awakening of religiously motivated people. So those are the five elements. Now to answer your question, what were the successes, what were the failures? I think conservatives would probably say that their greatest success was that they uh, maintained vigilance and a, a proactive policy of resistance to communism in the Kremlin. And finally, in the Reagan era, they would argue that because of the, new, the, the defense buildup of Reagan and his much uh, more um, uh, strenuous articulation of values of the West as opposed to the communists and so on, that he had a great deal, they would argue, with undermining the Soviet Union's sense of its own legitimacy and leading Gorbachev and other communist leaders to attempt to, quote, reform, unquote, communism, which had the effect of causing the system to spiral and, and uh, dissolve. So they would say that that is a victory for which conservatives should take some credit. That would be the conservative argument. I think they've been less successful in the realm of culture. They've been somewhat successful in the area of economics uh, during the 70s with the stagflation of the 70s and so on. The old liberal Keynesian soft socialist view that uh, government is, uh, is the answer and the free market is the problem got reversed and many began to argue, Milton Friedman and Reagan and others, that government itself was the problem at over-regulation, over-taxation, uh, meddling with entrepreneurship and so on, and that the better so the solution to that problem, as they perceived it, was a freer economy. And during the Reagan era and in through the 90s and into the almost up to the Great Recession of 2008, the conservative viewpoint, more free market-oriented viewpoint, was rather in the ascendancy. Now it's under much more challenge uh, from a new narrative. We might get to that in a moment. But the area where I think conservatives have had the greatest difficulty is in the area of trying to uh, preserve or purify the culture in the face of what they see as a great challenge from the left. And as I would put it, um, and I think I did in my book, and I say it publicly in lectures, in some ways in the past 30 or 40 years, America has been moving right and left at the same time. And this is what we sometimes call the culture wars. And I would argue that those wars continue, but uh, those who are in favor of uh, a, a, a non-Judeo-Christian view of, of certain subjects would argue, I would argue that they have been more victorious and that the conservatives have lost ground and feel much more on the defensive now uh, than they used to. So uh, that would be my quick assessment. There have been some gains, but also I would say from a conservative point of view, or a traditional conservative point of view, a feeling that the conservative side is much more under siege, and even in some of them fear uh, that conservatives are now facing uh, persecution even uh, in certain ways that might become more grave. So it's a mixed situation, but I think that's how the conservatives would, and how I as a historian of conservatism would tend to assess the pluses and minuses, broadly speaking. 
So in the conclusion of your book, uh, you describe the ways in which many older conservatives might look back at the second half of the 20th century with uh, some level of pride. Uh, they'd accomplished legitimacy and coherence under uh, Ronald Reagan, and their movement seemed to have some staying power, both uh, politically and in their own group intellectually. Uh, however, you also wrote uh, something very interesting. You wrote that among some conservatives, as well as many liberal critics, uh, there arose the suspicion, quote, that the conservative movement had been corrupted on its road to power. Um, why would they, why would they have, have felt this way? Well, the, the great moment of transition for conservatism, when it ceased to be reactive and became, you might say, proactive, was the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. And this was the mo moment when the conservative movement, which had long seen itself as a kind of remnant, uh, a defiant minority uh, on the outside looking in, suddenly entered the world, as I call it, the promised land inside the Beltway. And so the Reagan administration came and its economic policies on taxation and deregulation reflected this body of free market thinking that had developed over decades before that. Uh, the Cold War uh, was obviously very much a front and center with Reagan's agenda. That ties in with the anti-communist stream that I mentioned. And also Reagan's judicial appointments uh, and some of his rhetoric were... Uh, supportive of the traditionalists and the religious rights concern about the the importance of uh, restoring or, or maintaining the culture on traditional grounds. And of course the neoconservatives, many of them entered the Reagan administration. Uh, they had been for uh, Senator Henry Jackson of Washington, a, a sort of a hawkish Democrat for president, and he didn't make it. Jimmy Carter won. Uh, they, some of them were close to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a kind of revisionist liberal of New York, a, a great social scientist. But the hope of the neoconservatives when they were still in their sort of liberal centrist, left of center phase, those hopes didn't pan out and they crossed the Rubicon and joined the Reagan coalition. So all of that happens, and then some of the more, I would say, the more literary and, and um, academically oriented conservative thinkers felt that there was altogether too much scrambling for office, for power, you know, for influence in Washington, and that there were people who were rather opportunistically using the name conservative uh, to advance their personal agendas. This is the critique. And it's, I think, I guess my way of looking at it is that there's probably not a right or wrong answer to this question. It's rather that if you look at conservatism, it is probably best seen as a division of labor. There are people whose inclinations, backgrounds, temperaments would situate them in the realm of uh, high journalism, in the realm of the academy. And they don't necessarily want to go or should go to Washington, but you need to have think tanks in or near Washington to influence policy. You obviously need, again, you know, political figures to implement change. I don't see it's one, one avenue is bad or one avenue is good. It seems to me that each should respect, each side should respect the value and the contributions of the other in that sphere where they are. And so one of my concerns has often been analyzing this phenomenon is that there is a danger that this coalition can split apart because there is that sectarian temptation to go off in your own little corner and feel you've got the whole truth and look down on those who perhaps are not taking mm. the same path as you are. Whereas to succeed, it seems to me, and this is true of coalitions on the left as well, you need to have cooperation rather than fragmentation. So let's, let's talk for a moment about that sectarian impulse that you were just describing. Let's apply it uh, to today, uh, you've been talking about all of these factions in the um, in the conservative ranks: neocons, paleocons. Uh, you've listed theocons or theological conservatives, leocons, uh, followers of Leo Strauss, and then of course the traditionalists and the libertarians. Um, with all of this uh, 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 rivalry and vying for attention, not just in the on the intellectual side among the conservative ranks and in between think tanks. Um, but also, in the attention of the public, 
I'm wondering who who really wins the debates t t uh, today. Uh, I mean, right now we're watching um, uh, Republicans uh, debate each other, and it seems like it's it's coming down at least right now uh, to Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Um, and I have to imagine that a number of the conservatives who you've just described uh, might be. Uh, uh, shaking their heads in a bit of confusion uh, and perhaps even despair. I'm wondering uh, what what accounts for the rise of of someone like Donald Trump. Well, let me give you a couple of background points. First of all, uh, I have argued have argued in the book that one of the key unifying elements for this disparate coalition of people with different perspectives, but somewhat overlapping perspectives one of the key unifying elements was the sense of a, of a very dangerous external foe. And the, the Soviet Union, the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan called it famously. And what that meant was that there was a certain pressure to stick together, uh, lest you dis, dif, dissipate your strength in the face of a very dangerous external threat. Now, in the 1990s, as we know, starting in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, communism in Europe ceases to exist. And so one, two things happened now in the 1990s and their background to our, our current situation. One is, with the end of the Cold War, the impulse toward what was called fusion or merging of these elements, staying together under a a, a big tent, if you will, that impulse is weakened, or what I call movement consciousness uh, lapses. And so there is this great temptation then, oh, there's no longer an external foe to keep us all together, this, this great temptation to go off in different directions and to uh, create one's own little networks. And I think this is inherent in any coalition, as I said earlier, but once you lose that sense of sobriety engendered by the external foe, then it is much easier to succumb to this temptation of going off on, on one's own and having more intramural fights. And one of the things that happened in the wake of the Cold War ending was that there has been, over the last 20 years, uh, a number of, there have been a number of efforts to find a kind of new common ground. And so we got something called compassionate conservatism under George W. Bush. We got national greatness conservatism. We had got leave us alone conservatism, a kind of a libertarian tinge to that. Or more recently, constitutional conservatism or reform conservatism. We have all these subdivisions. It's a kind of a conscious searching for a new fusionism, if you will, a new source of unity. And for a time after 9-11, uh, the th new external threat of uh, Islamist uh, radicalism, ISIS, etc., that has provided a certain uh, feeling on, on sectors of the right that there needs to be more, more focus on that and not focus on these intramural rivalries and tribalistic types of tendencies. So one reason the ten those tendencies arise is that there is a loss of focus from the Cold War. The second factor that I think is is a predicate for current developments, or background for it, is this. We now live in the age of the internet. And this means that there is no longer anyone out there who has quite the same role for conservatives as William F. Buckley did for many years as editor of National Review and as host of Firing Line for 30 plus years and so on. He was kind of the face of conservative intellectuals or conservative journalism, if you will, from the 1950s um, just about till his death a few years ago. Another ecumenical figure was Ronald Reagan, kind of succeeding Buckley in that capacity. There is no such ecumenical figure today, and I'm not certain that there can be, because unlike the era of Reagan and the era of Buckley, we now have a wide open frontier out there called the Internet. National Review was the gatekeeper for conservatives for many years. That is to say, 
Buckley and National Review were almost alone out there on the landscape as the leading conservative journal. And Buckley was close to Barry Goldwater, very close to Ronald Reagan. Buckley was very influential, so was Reagan in kind of keeping all the factions together, at, uh, all together at the table, uh, keeping the, everyone united. That has been lost in part, I would say, because in the internet, there are no gates. There's no way for one for National Review today to have the same kind of commanding function as a sort of intellectual general staff of the conservative community as it did in 1955 or 1960 or 70. So, so, so you wouldn't then count, because of course there are people on the right who are commanding the attention of the media and the internet, um, but you wouldn't, for instance, uh, Trump or Cruz, but you would not count those two among the ecumenical figures of a fusionist conservatism that you would you would ascribe to Buckley? I think Cruz in some ways is close to and has certainly been trying to uh, identify himself with what I would call the Buckley-Reagan conservative movement, the five-part movement that we've been discussing uh, today. Trump represents something else, and just and in just a moment I'll elaborate on that. I think that technology now is such, and the velocity of, of discourse, and the volume of it, and the ease of, of, of entry into the conversation through personal websites, through Facebook, through Twitter, all of that militates against a few people having a kind of dominance that engenders broad following, broad respect. It just the, 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 as I analyze it, the whole communications revolution of our time, the last 20 years or so, means that no one has the same kind of command. Now, some like Trump or Cruz or, or people on Fox News, whatever, will have larger audiences, but they cannot sort of define the, the boundaries of appropriate or, or mainstream discourse. It's harder to have a mainstream when there are so many people out there who can all have their own small followings. The, the internet is um, um, uh, applicable here. Also, the internet makes it very much easier than it used to be to carry on feuds with one another. Uh, so, again, uh, when National Review was the only game in town, or nearly so, well, if you got printed in National Review, you got read. But National Review deliberately argued that some people should not belong in acceptable conservative conversation, like extremist conspiracy theorists, for example. Well, <laughs> well, it sounds, I mean, it sounds a bit like National Review then that represented the conservative establishment. I mean, is 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 the fact that there's, there's no... Uh, well, of course, there was a National Review, but it's not holding or occupying the same cultural space that it did in, in Buckley's era. I mean, is, is the rise of Trump a final populist uh, la lashing out against uh, the conservative uh, establishment? Okay, um, let me answer it this way. We, populism is the, the term of the hour, isn't it? It is. On the left, Bernie Sanders. On the right, you say Trump. Cruz in certain ways. I, populism in this country has had different forms at different times, and I will just define populism here very simply as the revolt by ordinary people against overbearing or self-seeking elites. Right. That's the impulse. Now, it has often been on the left, and when the left uh, is in a populist mode, the elites that the left attack, uh, attacks of, uh, uh, from a populist viewpoint are what Bernie Sanders calls the millionaires and billionaires. Corporate elites, private sector elites, Wall Street, bankers. Okay. Now, there is also, however, there has also been at times a conservative form of populism. And I would say that Reagan and the Tea Party are indicative of that in the sense that they too are arguing that the people have been mistreated by or misled by elites, but the elite that the Reaganites and the Tea Partyites attack is not the corporate elites, it's not big money, it's big government, mm. the bureaucratic progressive elites. So 
the, there are two forms of populism here that are in competition. And until a year ago, I would have said to you that it was very likely that the 2016 election would become a battle between the left version that I just described and the Reaganite Tea Party version, uh, which form of populism better explains the economic crisis of the last decade. Mm. Is, is it a failure of capitalism, as the Sanders people will tell you, or is it a failure of the regulatory state in the Federal Reserve Board, as the conservatives will tell you? That's a left versus right battle. Along comes Donald Trump, a kind of volcanic eruption last year, in the form of what I'll simply call Trumpism. But it is not confining itself. Trump is not confining himself to attacking the, the, the liberal elites or progressive elites in Washington the way the conservatives of yore have been doing. No, he's attacking the conservative and Republican elites, and they're distinct, but the conservative intellectual elite and the Republican elites from below. As someone has said, this is not original with me now, but someone recently said that what we're seeing here is not right versus left under Trump. We're seeing a kind of redefinition of our bound of our contours of politics above versus below. And what Trump is doing is giving voice to a lot of people who feel that the elites of both parties, if you will, have been unresponsive to their uh, despair, to their concerns. And the, the areas of focus, of course, are the, um, the economic malaise, uh, global trade patterns, global migration patterns. And so what Trump has come along and done is give voice to this great resentment on the part of, uh, people say the white working class, but it's more than that, um, these people who are feeling very perturbed uh, and feeling that they are not being listened to by their so-called betters, their so-called elitist betters, so that we have a kind of hybrid, a third form of populism now on the scene, which is both leftist and rightist in its components. It's not easily called one thing or the other. I would say that in some ways it represents in a kind of inchoate form something that we are seeing in Europe, in the National Front in France, mm -hmm. the Alternative for Germany Party, the United Kingdom Independence Party, and so on. Parties that are conventionally called right-wing, but they are often, if you look at them, these European parties of protest, they're often statist, welfare statist, in their economic policies. And Trump, Trumpism, in some ways, is like that. And what is driving those parties and Trump is not simply the economic concerns and the concerns over migration and, and, and so forth, but also uh, a sense that the elites, the traditional ruling classes of the left and the nominal right, are simply uh, indifferent to or clueless about uh, these concerns from below. So this has led to what I think one would have to conclude is a kind of battle now, a war, for the mind and soul of American conservatism. So, so if if Trumpism, uh, if Trump and Trumpism, um, if if that is in many ways um, uh, populist in both the, in the terms of both the left and the right, then why has Trump sort of leached onto the Republican Party rather than the, the Democratic Party? Well, he chose to run in the Republican Party. Right. I suppose he could have caused a commotion if he had run as a Democrat. Uh, there's one more factor about Trump that I should explain to, to, I think, to fully lay out my own view of this. When the neoconservatives arose in the Republican into the Republican ranks uh, in the uh, or conservative ranks, and then Republican Party through Reagan and so on, in the 70s, late 70s and 80s, there arose a reaction against them, which became called paleoconservatism. And the paleoconservatives argued that the neoconservatives were false conservatives. They were just warmed over Wilsonian, New Deal, liberals, etc., uh, and that they were not true conservatives at all, and that, that they were wanted to have crusades for global democracy, etc. So the paleoconservatives became very uh, hostile to the neoconservatives, caused a lot of stress over this past uh, two-decade period that we've talked about a bit. I would say that if you look at the paleoconservatives, and I think of Patrick Buchanan as kind of the, a key figure here, uh, certainly a, a well-known figure, 
what did they what did they argue about? They 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 didn't like uh, what they call global democracy. They didn't like global free trade, or they they didn't like um, uh, unrestricted third world immigration into America. I would say that to the extent that Trump has a kind of an ideology or a worldview, it comes from the paleocons. I'm not sure he knows that particularly. I don't know how much he reads that kind of literature, but it is striking to me how much of Trumpism is uh, reflective of the paleocon subset, if you will, of the conservative movement, one of those many factions that we uh, talked about a moment ago, and this tendency of the right to divide into further factions after the Cold War uh, departed. So Buchanan, not coincidentally, I would say, is today overjoyed at the uh, Trump candidacy and is supporting him vigorously. Uh, there is this great debate now between conservatives. The, the conservative movement is, frankly, divided. There are some very strong boosters of Trump at certain websites and certain talk show hosts and, and others. Uh, there are those around National Review and the Weekly Standard that are vehemently uh, against Trump, some of them even pledging never to vote for him under any circumstances. So you have this, this new great divide, which is in a way vertical rather than horizontal. If, if horizontal is right versus left, uh, it's this above versus below phenomenon, and some people become very worried that they're seeing in here uh, uh, a kind of nationalist, populist kind of reformation of the landscape that uh, could be um, very hard to uh, accept. And so people on the left and the right are, you know, as you know, talking about this uh, quite uh, insistently. And as we record this conversation in April, uh, we are looking forward, I think, to several months of great turbulence until this is sorted out, either with or without Trump's uh, becoming the Republican nominee. So as, as my last question, then, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, how do you think, after we get through the turbulence, do you have any prediction about how things are going to turn out? Uh, and if not, I suppose, then what would you say to uh, both the conservatives and the liberals um, uh, scratching their heads at the Trump phenomenon and wondering what will happen in the next few months, and indeed the next four to eight to 40 years? Well, a lot will depend upon the course of the campaign, whether it turns really turbulent even on the streets, and there are some early indications that it might. That's a danger. Uh, also, uh, if the outcome is a disastrous defeat for the party of the right, uh, uh, then that would mean a weakening of those forces politically, which would presumably lead to a new uh, lurch to the left under a, let us say, a Hillary Clinton administration. Uh, that would probably be most visible in court appointments at the Supreme Court and appellate levels, and uh, that could shape the um, outcome of a lot of policy disputes as to the extent that they're decided by the Supreme Court for a considerable time to come. So there is a lot riding on this election from both parties' point of view, I suppose, but particularly from the conservative point of view, because the Supreme Court now is effectively about evenly split, and whoever wins the election presumably will get to tilt the, the court either back toward the conservative side, more or less, or maybe more decisively to the left if, uh, let us say, Hillary Clinton becomes president. So there is uh, a lot that could happen. I think my advice to conservatives would be, and in fact I gave this advice uh, to a conservative group just a week ago, is that it might be advisable for conservative intellectuals right now to step back from all of this commotion and and disagreement and just ask themselves what do conservatives want? What do they want? What should they want? And I would say, to put it in simple terms, that I would say that what conservatives want is probably what they've always wanted since 1945, and I'll put it this way, they want to be free. I'm talking about grassroots conservatives now. They want to be free live in a free society. They want to be able to live decent and virtuous lives. They want to be safe, safe from foreign and domestic threats. When you look at it that way, you're, these are impulses in the human heart, at least the hearts of conservatives, I would say, 
impulses that are reflected in the free market or classical liberal or libertarian wing of the conservative community, the traditionalist and social conservative wing, and the national security dimension, whether it's Cold War or something else at this time. So we use the word fusionism as a, as a kind of a theoretical effort, an effort in theory to reconcile these polarities and keep conservatives in a in a uh, unified framework of discourse over the years. Fusionism, a term that was quite popular some years ago and still is used. I would say that there's a little fusionism in nearly everybody. And so what might be advisable is for conservative intellectuals to go back a bit to the basics. And instead of arguing uh, about personalities and insults and and even policy uh, minutiae, just say, folks, what do we stand for? And how, are we, how do we define the challenges to freedom uh, and, and a moral life, uh, traditional culture, if you will, and uh, threats, whether from ISIS or from expansionist powers on the Eurasian landmass and so on. So if I would like to think that if conservatives did that more, they might discover that there is more common ground among them than is uh, evident right now during this uh, vast commotion. One more thing about the Trump phenomenon. Uh, I think with any phenomenon like this, you have to analyze it at several levels. One is what I would call the, the grievances that are being expressed, the program of the aggrieved, um, and then the personality and character of the person who was leading the aggrieved and wishes to implement their program. So I would say that many conservative intellectuals are sympathetic to the grievances that are being expressed at the grassroots and would probably concede that the conservative establishment, in quotes, uh, has not been as responsive as it should have been to the concerns of everyday Americans, if you will, okay. But they are less impressed, conservative intellectuals, with some of the program that is being expressed. So you get differences over how immigration policy and tax policy and the like. And of course, they are very concerned, uh, many conservative intellectuals of the Reagan-Buckley school, if you will, of that older conservative movement, by what they see as a kind of nationalist, populist, hard edge. Uh, hard-edged uh, phenomenon that uh, doesn't um, adhere to the boundaries of accepted discourse and so forth. So they're very concerned with some of the uh, emotions that are being expressed and the way they're being expressed. They're worried that this will get out of hand, even lead to turbulence on, street, on the streets and rallies and so forth. We've seen a little bit of that. And they, of course, have many reservations about the... the um, judgment, qualifications, personality, and record of the man who is most um, in the news, uh, Donald Trump. So you can slice it different ways here. And so conservatives have many different viewpoints as they analyze the phenomenon, uh, but I think that it is proving to be a very uh, disruptive one. And uh, many conservatives, I think, are quite concerned that this will as they say, end badly. It might end in the sense of his lose, getting the nomination and losing the election, but permitting a political shift to the left that would really push things in a way that conservatives would find very uncongenial for a long time to come. So a lot is rising, uh, riding on the immediate political outcome. I think I should also say, though, that conservatism, for your listeners, uh, particularly conservatism of the intellectual variety that I've spent many years studying, is not identical with Republican politicians uh, or certain news media outlets. That's the way it tends to be heard and seen by people just keeping up with the day's news. But there are people of great stature and have been like Hayek and Russell Kirk and Friedman and Buckley and others who have expressed very deep and, and really profound thoughts about all sorts of issues that we grapple with as a society. 
And I sometimes say that what conservatism needs today is minds as well as voices. And we have a lot of conservative voices out there, and many of them are educated voices. I don't want to sound unduly disparaging, but it seems to me that conservatives have thinking to do and that, that maybe they need to go back a bit and just start asking those questions and work, work for up from there. Well, we've gotten out of touch with a lot of people, apparently, we the elites uh, and our conservative followers out there, and many of them are turning to another uh, kind of individual with a kind of a hybrid ideology that, that um, conservatives find uh, many of them to be uh, uh, unpersuasive un, um, and so on. So with all of that going on, then conservatives, the, there's a place for conservative minds to rededicate themselves to, to the, the fundamental questions. And maybe, maybe we would find in a calmer frame of mind that, that there is more common ground among the conservatives than the present uh, commotion would lead us to think. So. George, this has been an illuminating conversation. Thanks very much for talking with me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You just listened to our interview with George H. Nash. To learn more about George, check out his bio pages at the Russell Kirk Center or the Hoover Institution at Stanford. His book, The Conservative Intellectual Movements in America Since 1945, is available in paperback and on Kindle. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.